0: because you reach the climax of the story and then it keeps going a couple of more chapters. It has to wrap up all of the loose ends, so to speak. And so you'll remember the story of Esther, right? So the king, King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, is throwing a big party and his wife revolts and won't come and be prated around in front of the king's friends. And so The king banishes her, and then he goes off to war, and then he comes back, and he's like, I don't have a queen, and so they have this beauty contest, gather hundreds of women for this contest, and then Esther is chosen, and nobody knows that she is a Jew, and she hides that, and she also has an uncle who cares for her since her family is dead. She's orphaned, and her uncle says, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Well, the uncle gets some privileged information and saves the king's life, and it's recorded in the book, and then they go on. And there's an evil man, Haman, um, who is an Agagite, and the Agagites and God's people go back, um, you know. 800 years at least from this point that they've been at war with each other, and the Bible presents those very much as a sense of God's people and the wicked nations around them being at war with one another. And Haman tricks the king, or maybe he doesn't trick, the king just doesn't care. He gets a decree to annihilate all the Jews at a certain day. Well, if you're a Jew, this isn't exactly a happy day for you. And so Mordecai says to Esther, you've got to go to the king. And she's like, but he's got men with head choppers next to him. And the rule is if he doesn't hold out his golden scepter, and that's the end of you. And Mordecai says, well, you've got to do it anyway, because it's going to be the end of you either way. So she goes before the king and says, come to a feast, and they have a feast day one, and Haman goes out on top of the world, I've been invited with the king, and sure enough, that night he's moaning about the fact that Mordecai, the Jew, won't bow down to him. So he builds a 75-foot gallows, first thing in the morning, he's there ready to ask for Mordecai to be hung, and the king greets him, saying, what should be done for the person who the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks, it must be me. But it turns out that story of Mordecai saving his life had been read the previous night, and it's Mordecai. And so Haman is humiliated as he leads Mordecai through the streets, only to arrive at the palace for another feast to be pointed at by Esther, saying, this is the man, the wicked man, that has put a death sentence on me and my people. While Haman is hung on the gallows, You think, well, that's done. You know, the credits roll. But no, then we had last week, which was there's still these decrees that the king made for the destruction of the Jews that have to be dealt with, and so they deal with those by having an overriding decree. A decree for evil is overridden by a decree for good. And so you think, all right, now we're done, but no, we're not done. There's still that day. That day when the dueling decrees must play out. That day when the decrees of death to the Jews and the decree of life for the Jews must play out. And what's going to happen and how is it going to play out on that day? That's Esther chapter 9 and then we'll, we'll put chapter 10 on there too since it's only three verses. And this will be. In some sense the closure of this story, but a demonstration of God's grace and mercy to his people. Esther chapter 9, let's read. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and their royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also killed, and again, these are just great names. Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmasha, and Arisai, and Aridai, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. In that very day, the number of those killed in Susa the Citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to the queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and have also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those that hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things. And sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and also the fifteenth day of the same year by year. As the days on which Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor, so the Jews accepted what, had, what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the hundred and seven twenty-seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons— as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, please send your spirit to work through your word that we would understand it and that we would live it out for your glory and your honor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In a fictional country that some of you may be familiar with, there is a capital city and then surrounding the capital are various districts. And every year, there are two people chosen from each district to participate in what is a reality TV show of sorts. An arena is set up And these people from each district come and have a fight to the death until there is just one person left standing. And there is this line that the book and the film have that just states the idea very clearly, may the odds be ever in your favor. Except for the people in this fictional city, they know the odds are not in their favor. Like, only one person will stand at the end, and everyone else will die. And one of the realities is that in most of the different districts, there are people that train for this. And so a person is chosen, but somebody else can volunteer. And so there have been people that have been training in the martial arts and all the sports so that they can be the best, so that they can win. And so there's this David versus Goliath sense that if you're from one of the districts and you just got picked and you haven't trained and you haven't got the skills, the odds are far from being in your favor. In fact, the odds are completely against you. The odds of you ever winning, ever coming out on top are very close To zero. Such would have been the reality for a probably teenage girl in the city of Susa whose family was dead, who was cared for by an uncle. Like, what are the odds that she would be the person that God would use to deliver his people? What are the odds of that? almost zero, right? The, the odds were not in her favor for even surviving or living a good or prosperous life. There, there was nothing much that was going to happen about her life, much as would be true for countless orphans that exist throughout our world, especially in countries and places that are extremely poor. There's a sense of Whatever odds they are, they are not in their favor. And sometimes we think that, well, what are the odds that the church can have great influence on the world and culture? Like, what are the odds that God's people come out on top? We see corruption in our world and wars and rumors of wars We see even in this week, in the last day or so, uh, battles and wars happening in the Middle East. And you wonder, and you ask the question, like, what are the odds for peace? What are the odds that the church will prevail? And sometimes we even look at our own lives this way in terms of making odds, like, what are the odds that I'll succeed at that career or that one? Or what are the odds that my children will stay in the faith? Or what are the odds that we play the game, right? What are the odds that I'll continue to prosper financially? And one of the, one of the things that happens when we start to play the game of odds and the game of chance is that we begin to see God's sovereignty slip away. We begin to practically live as if if we are atheists. We begin to stop taking risks for God's kingdom. We begin to start hedging our bets. We begin to believe that, especially in difficult times, Maybe it all is just a bunch of odds and chance. And so as Esther comes to a close, it makes the same point as it is made over and over and over and over and over again. That God's people don't need the odds to be in their favor. And it can even look like they are a nobody and everybody else is a somebody And everyone is stacked against them, and the odds are not ever in their favor. And yet, God is the one that holds it all. Let's see how this text demonstrates, and again and again pounds home the idea, God's promises are not left to chance. And the first thing that we see in our text is simply the reverse, and the first three verses kind of get at this, Um, and it has a very direct direct wording. The reverse occurred in verse 1. That's the start, the reverse. Well, what was the reverse? Well, there are reverses throughout this entire text. Esther is a nobody. An orphan, that is reversed. She becomes the queen, a person in authority and with power. It's reversed. Mordecai chapter 2, he saves the king's life and is completely overlooked. Mordecai chapter 8, it's reversed. He is put into a position of power, he is no longer overlooked. Haman makes a decree against the Jews. It is reversed. It is turned upside down. There is an overriding decree that overrides his decree. Esther, is it fear for her life to go before the king? And in our text here, Esther boldly goes before the king, and it seems they're past that. Like now she can go directly to him and say, hey, I'd like this, 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 and this. And the king responds... There's this sense of I am a quiet person that's just biding my time has turned into I am a person for such a time as this and I will speak boldly before the king. It's reversed. Haman builds a gallows for his enemy Mordecai and then he re- he leads Mordecai through the streets as if he's a king. It's reversed. As Haman is hung on those gallows in a complete reversal of everything that was attempted. And then there is the wealth of Haman that Haman boasts about before his family is reversed and the wealth is given to Esther and to Mordecai. And you just get the sense of the way that this text works, right? Everything that men do for power and control and to get the things that they want to their ends is reversed and turned on its head, not even by the power of God's people, but by the power of God's direct working in the world and in the lives of His people. And so you have this this grand reversal, and now it comes to that day of judgment, the 13th day of the month of Adar, the day that Haman had cast lots. Again, the chance of it, or as I would say, the loaded dice. Haman did not realize that he was working in the best Las Vegas establishment that knows how to con every customer no matter what. The algorithms never leave the house broke, right? And Haman thought, you know, I can, I can roll the dice and find the day that will be the day of judgment for the Jews. And he'd rolled them over and over again for the right day, the right time. And all of his chance is overridden by this decree that counters his. And so instead of the dice rolling for the day that Haman wanted to destroy the Jews, the dice was rolled for the day that the Jews would destroy their enemies. Everything turned upside down. With one exception. The Jews didn't loot their enemies. Even though they could have. Even though decree said that they could have. And I want us to appreciate for a moment that godly people defend themselves against their enemies, but they do not do so to enrich themselves or make themselves like their enemies. And in the great reversal, it may be that God exalts and gives wealth or influence to his people, and when he does that, give him the glory and don't let that wealth and influence ruin you and your life as it does so many in our world. But at the same time, defending the faith is not to be done so that we can accumulate the things that the world values. And sometimes I think that there's this sense of character that we get in God's people that says, no, this is not for me if I have to protect myself, if I have to protect my religious freedom, if I have to do these things, it is not so that I am advancing my kingdom. It is not so people will say, wow, look at how successful they are at that. It's simply to say, I'm only going to do what is necessary to protect myself, to protect my family, to protect my people. And so God's people— unlike the world, have a line of self-control. They do not play by the same rules as the world because they recognize that even if the world's rules apply to them, they report to someone higher. And so the truth of what Haman said back in chapter three: "O king, these people report to someone else, and if your laws are in conflict with theirs, they go with their laws above yours in the day where they could have enriched themselves, they could have made themselves more prominent, they could have seized assets and houses and communities, they only did what was necessary to defend themselves. The great reversal. Now, I don't know what things in your life you wish would be reversed, I don't know what effects of sin that you are dealing with in your life that you just think to yourself, how long, oh Lord? Like, how long before these decrees of this world and this wickedness and sin that I struggle with, how long will it be reversed? How long until that day? To some degree, the answer to that question is how long? Well, it will not be long, but we do not know the day. But there is a day of the Lord that is coming. And we expect and we anticipate and even we see in our world that the Lord intervenes in small ways that reflect what he will do when he intervenes on the day when Jesus comes again. God's people are not left alone today to our own devices. We are not left alone to wring our hands in despair when the world is in chaos or when our lives don't work well. But those are the things that we say to the Lord. I am not skilled to understand, as the hymn writer, but what God has willed, but God has planned. But I know that at his right hand stands one who is my Savior. And it's those days that we believe that it will be ultimately reversed. The reversal here is a temporary one. But God's people, when they see temporary reversals on earth, That is a picture and a symbol of a greater reversal that they're looking for and looking forward to at the day of the Lord. So we see the reversal. Then we see the celebration. The the day after, they throw a party. Let us celebrate what God has done. And I hope that you have these sorts of things built into your life. And this was something that was just a part of the religious life of Old Testament saints. You celebrated the Passover. You threw a party. You celebrated, um, you know, you you think of the symbols in Genesis. There's Jacob setting up a stone, a memorial. Joshua chapter 4, there's a pile of stones being set up, a memorial. You'll walk by, you'll remember, you're celebrating what the Lord has done. We did that last Sunday at the Lord's table. There's that reminder. We're celebrating what the Lord has done. There should be celebrations built into the Christian life. Now at our house we have more birthdays than the average household because we have more people than average, right? And so, you know, um, you, you, you have cake, you have presents, you celebrate, right? We go around the table and talk about what we appreciate about the person who's having a birthday and There's that sense of you mark things by celebrating them, and if it matters, then you need to have some sort of formal way to mark it, otherwise it will fall away. This is why it matters to come to church every Sunday. This is why I'm thankful that all of you are here. There's that sense that that is your marking and celebrating. Yes, Jesus, he died on the cross. There was a decree of death sentenced over him, and a decree of life overrode that decree. And we're going to celebrate that. We're going to come together. We're going to do that as a church body. And do it, again, and our our text has these words, obligation. The Jews obligated themselves. And I know our culture doesn't really like that terminology. But, I mean, it's, it's sort of, and Jesus talks about this, the people that are invited to the party and don't come. Like, why not? Did you have something better to do? And there are lots of people that did have excuses as to why they didn't come. I bought a field or I bought some oxen or I, have, I just got married. You know, I can't make it. You know, too busy. It's a busy, crazy, busy world. How do you expect me to make it to church? How do you expect me to, to set aside time to, to celebrate? I'm too busy doing things that are much more serious than that. And so as, as solemn... As a decree of death is, how much more amazing is a decree of life? And that is why we come to church every Sunday. That's why church is not a once every three years sort of occasion. It's to celebrate life. Every week of Sunday, every week Easter, in a sense. And so the Jews said, we're not going to forget we're not going to forget the celebration, and they call it Purim, which is, which is named after the dice. I mean, there's sort of a, a humorous irony in that, right? What are you going to church for? Well, we're going to celebrate the odds. <laughs> You'd say, wait a minute. Do you go to a Christian church? You're going to celebrate the odds? Yeah, we're going to celebrate that... The, the fact that some twenty seven hundred years ago um, some people were rolling some dice and the dice were rolled well, but I, I think that there is there's meant to be a, a sense of irony in that right because the the acknowledgement is that God holds everything, and so if you celebrate the dice that are being rolled, you celebrate that God is the one that holds the hands and holds the weight and holds everything. And even when people attribute things to chance, God's people are celebrating that it wasn't chance. So for every time you hear that word chance or odds, celebrate that there are none. (laughs) Celebrate that there... The world can roll its dice as many times as it wants. It can plot as often as it wants. It can declare that Christianity is obsolete as often as it wants. It can declare that the church is dead as often as it wants. It can seek to persecute God's people as often as it wants. It doesn't matter because the dice that are in their hands and the plots that are in their heads and the odds that they are weighing, God holds all of them. So this week, if somebody asks you, so what did you learn this week? Well, I learned about celebrating the roll of the dice. But I do want to just ask you, honestly, is celebration a part of your religious life? Even today, so the, the Jews, um, every year they have this, this ritual that um, a Jewish synagogue at the Feast of Purim, they read the book of Esther they give gifts to each other. It's an ongoing tradition, and it still is practiced by, by the Jewish people today. They, they realize, and it's embedded in them, we've got to remember, or else we'll forget. And I would encourage you in your life, set up reminders, set up celebrations. Make a big deal out of it. Yes, God is at work in the world and he is sovereign over all. And every promise that he makes in his word from beginning to end is not left to the odds. Well, we have the reverse, the celebration, and then we have the result. Chapter 10 says, well, the king is still great, we started with chapter 1 with the king being great and decreeing feasts. We end chapter 9 with the king being great and the Jews decreeing feasts. Again, appreciate the irony going into that. But the king is still rich. He's counting his money. And his kingdom was indeed great by all of the standards of greatness of that time. And he brought in a great amount of wealth And I am reminded of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29 where he says, Seek the welfare of the city in which you live, speaking to those that are in exile. And it appears that Mordecai and Esther sought the welfare of the city where they lived. And in fact, through the wisdom and the work of Mordecai, the king was greatly blessed. And his kingdom was great. The amount of money that he brought in was great. And what we know about this king, he was probably good with that. Here's Mordecai. He's managing all the stuff so I don't have to be bothered. And I'm making a ton of money. This is a good life for me. It's kind of a strange thing that God blesses an unbelieving king because that unbelieving king has a godly person working for them. But the Bible says, again, seek the welfare of the place where you live. And the result of godly people living their lives in godly ways will be the welfare of their communities. And so one of the ways that God calls us as people to live is to ask, well, where's your house? Where's your apartment? Where's the place in which you live? Then look at your neighbors and say, how can I seek the welfare of my neighbors? How can I seek the welfare of my community? How can I serve and sometimes we'd like to think, well, hey, God, listen, if there is some really rich person who would like to put me in a position of power so that I can implement all sorts of policies that I think would be great, like, if you could just do that, God, and make me really rich in the process, like, that would be great. But that, that belongs to God. But for us, there's a sense in this story that here were people that didn't have influence and power, and they were seeking the welfare of their community. And what God did with that was in God's hands and not theirs. And the same thing is true for us here this morning, that God calls us, if we want to say that we live in a modern-day Persia, or maybe the more common term that's used is a Babylon of today, if that's where we live... We want to ask the question honestly, how can I seek the welfare of my neighbor? How can I seek the welfare of my community? How can I seek the welfare of my leaders? How can I seek the welfare of the president and the vice president and all of the people that God that God has put in authority? Because we have no right to ever say that God is not in control or that somebody's in authority by chance. And I, I love the way that prognosticators in our world explain things. Depending on their political or their worldview, they say, oh, well, this happened because of these five things that were going on. Well, maybe there's a little bit of truth to their analysis. But the reality is those things happened because there's a sovereign God that holds everything that determined that those things would happen. And we don't need to oversimplify the world and flatten it all and to just say, oh, well, que whatever will be, will be. There's not inaction. And if you have a road and you want to think of, well, what does God call me to do? Inaction is not what he calls you to do. He's called you to where you are for such a time as this. Inaction is not an option. Presumption is not an option either. You don't presume that, well, I'm a Christian, so therefore God is going to take me like Esther from having a low place, and he's going to make me a famous, influential person. You simply ask the question today, how can I serve God faithfully in the place that he has put me, and how can I trust him with the outcome? And ultimately... If you're thinking about odds, if you're thinking about the odds being ever in your favor, there is a place, there is a place where the the odds of you being able to be good enough or to be used by God are so low that there isn't even a chance. But there is a God who determines to take vessels of clay and to mold them and to use them for his purposes. And so this isn't a story about human odds or human success or human savvy. It's a story about God carrying out his purposes, keeping his promises, preserving his people, And a God that does that in Persia can certainly do that in your life wherever he has placed you. A God who overrides wickedness in Persia and overrides wickedness at the cross can override wickedness in your life and can override the wickedness that is in the world. And so thank the Lord That we do not live in a world where we need to look around and wonder are the odds ever in my favor but instead we simply know if someone's rolling dice god holds those if someone's plotting god knows that if someone's determined to destroy the church god has their name But more than that, and more importantly, God knows my name. I'm reminded of the words of Francis Schaeffer when he said, there are no little people and no little places. Esther was a little person in a a big place. Mordecai was a little person in a little place. Mary was a little person in a very little place. And we're, unless there are a bunch of celebrities visiting that I don't know about, we're not famous people in famous places either. But God says, for such a time as this, there are no odds for you. I have you where you need to be. Follow me faithfully. And I am in your favor. Because in Christ, I see you with favor. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your word and for your promises to us. And even as we come to an end of this book, we're reminded of our weakness and your strength. Of our inability and of your sovereignty. Enable us, by your grace, to be your faithful servants.